a special blessing on the offerings and the giving that would become that would come into the fellowship today. And we thank you, Lord, for your provision and your faithfulness. And Lord, we also just would ask that you would speak to us as we open the word together. God, I would ask that you would just anoint me, help me, God, to communicate those things that you have for our hearts today, that I would be faithful to minister your heart from the word, and that you would give us ears to hear those things that you long to see, say to us in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We got through a first couple of verses of chapter 2 last week. Today we'll be moving our way from verse 3 into verse 11. Just a few verses, about half the chapter today. And today's message is called Preservation and Restoration. Preservation and Restoration. Now, before we get started, let me simply ask you this. Wouldn't it be great if we never had any problems in the church? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we just all always got along? We always saw things eye to eye, never any confrontation, never any conflict, never any disunity, just one beautiful, happy family in Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe it would be great if you could have that even in your family. Can you imagine all of your kids just compliant and obedient, straight-A students, every one of them, and just all around your table in harmony and beauty? Oh, wouldn't it be awesome? Or maybe your marriage. Oh, just honeymoon forever. You know, everything works out. Never a conflict. Never anything that you have to talk through, work out. No confrontation. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like my marriage. (laughs) All right. So, back to reality. (laughs) The truth is that nothing really works that way, does it? Because all of us are human and frail and we have shortcomings and there's conflicts and there's issues that come up in all of these settings. And yet, God has put us together in these kinds of relationships, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, whether it's church. And He's asked us to walk in love toward one another. Now listen, that's going to take work. That's going to take some effort. That's going to take some preservation on our part. We're going to have to endeavor, as we learned at the men's study yesterday in the book of Ephesians, we're going to have to endeavor to maintain and keep the unity amongst our our fellowship. So there is a certain amount of things that have to be preserved, and we have to be diligent. Otherwise, uh, we'll have disunity, we'll have divisions, we'll have factions, we'll have issues in the church. And of course, this is what much of the letters to the Corinthian church is about. It's Paul having to address certain issues and problems to bring them together in unity. And, you know, we've seen already in our study through 1 Corinthians that the church had been influenced by the culture and much of the sinful things and practices going on in their day. Much of that was infiltrating into the life of the church. They were being influenced by their their culture. A number of issues that Paul would address. He would address division. Immorality was amongst them. He would talk about the Lord's table, the communion table. He talked about spiritual gifts. As as we've studied in 1 Corinthians, a variety of correcting things that Paul had to address. 
And many received that correction. They received what Paul the Apostle had to say, but some resisted and even sought to undermine Paul's spiritual authority. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to receive his correction. And so much of this second letter is in fact to encourage those that have received his ministry and to defend his ministry to those that were resisting what God had entrusted to him. Now we saw last week that Paul talked specifically about some of the travel plans that he changed and how some of that was causing a certain uh, disruption in the church. Some were thinking, oh, he doesn't show up when he says he's going to come. He's not reliable. He doesn't keep his word. And Paul is having to explain himself and give a little bit of oper- a little bit of understanding. Look, it's not because I'm <clears throat> flaky, but rather I wanted to give time for the church to respond to some of the correction and instruction that I have already given. And Paul had, in fact, made a, a visit there, and it was something of a painful visit. He had had to correct a number of things, follow up, no doubt, on his first letter. And so he wants to give some time for the Holy Spirit to bring these corrections about and give the church an opportunity so that his next visit would be with joy, not with sorrow and having to kind of readdress these things that, that he was trying to straighten out. And this is our, te- this is our context. So as we get into the, to the verses here in chapter 2 today, I wanted you to kind of have that as your backdrop. This, this is the intention of Paul's heart as he writes this letter. And follow with me. I'm going to pick that up in verse 1 just for continuity of thought. But my main focus will be on verses 3 through 11. But let's read the text and we'll come back through and, and explain what's going on. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by, my, by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came... I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. And this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven. if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, as we read through these verses... I think it stands out to us that you know Paul is clearly addressing a very specific issue in the church at Corinth. And we don't know exactly what that issue was. We can kind of piece it together from other letters, from the book of Acts. But clearly, they knew what Paul was talking about. But for us, we have to just kind of decipher some of the specifics 
But more, more importantly, what we can pull out are the spiritual principles that are in application here. It seems that Paul was delayed in coming, and he was waiting for uh, an opportunity for the church to respond to his letter. Maybe the letter was 1 Corinthians. Some believe that there was an additional letter written in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, a letter that we do not have access to, and it's possible. But we know that he says it was out of much affliction and anguish of heart that I wrote to you with many tears. That's what he says in verse 4. Not that you would be grieved, but that you would know the love that I have so abundantly for you. Paul wants them to know, look, it's not easy for me to write these corrective things to you. It's never easy to bring confrontation, correction. It's never fun. It's not anything that anyone enjoys, whether it be in personal relationships, family relationships, or ministry and church. And Paul, certainly we see his heart. Look, it was painful. I was shedding tears because I just love you guys so much. It grieves me to have to talk about some of these things. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to shame you. But I, I want to preserve the church. A painful letter, many tears, abundant love. Apparently there was some kind of an issue that was taking place that required some type of church discipline. Paul says the punishment that's been inflicted is sufficient. Verse 6, for such a man. And it's possible that this was the man that the Apostle Paul referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he wrote that the church needed to address this man who was living openly in immorality within the church. He was living with his stepmother in an immoral relationship. And he said, listen, this guy has no repentance. He's just kind of in the light of the, the church, just living in open sin. You need to address that. You need to protect the church. And it could be that this is now the man that has come to repentance and now Paul is encouraging that he be restored. Some believe that it may have been someone else that that stood up against Paul when he was there on a prior visit. We're not sure. It seems to me best to see uh, this as the man in 1 Corinthians 5. And now Paul's heart is to restore him. He's repented. He has much sorrow. His heart is broken. Now forgive and comfort him and reaffirm your love for him. So these are the details of what Paul's letter is covering. What are some of the spiritual principles that we can discuss today? And these are I have two things that I want to draw out for you, and they're in the title. I want to talk about preservation, and I want to talk about restoration. First of all, preservation. Do we have a responsibility to preserve a spiritual integrity within our church, within the church? Does the church have an obligation to maintain and preserve a moral and spiritual integrity? Are there standards of conduct and doctrine that need to be preserved and protected? Or is the church free to adapt and modify standards according to the changes in society and culture? In effort to be relevant in our day, should the church adapt its message and and ministry and purpose to be more inclusive and acceptable to the modern thinking of our time? This is a valid question. This is a relevant question. Because we're living in a time of changing culture. How many of you have noticed? Things are changing. 
And uh, you know what, what before was thought of as to be somewhat obscure is now becoming normal in our time. How does the church respond? Do we move with the tide of the culture? Do we adapt and change as well? Or are there certain absolutes that the church must maintain and must keep preserved in order to still be the church of Jesus Christ? This is a very relevant question today, and I believe it's going to become an even more relevant question in days ahead. So it's worth talking about. It's not an easy thing to talk about. I've got to be honest with you, this isn't my favorite topic, but I think it's important that we, as a congregation, kind of think these things through and be prepared for what God might have for us in our day, in the generation that He has asked us to live and be salt and light in. Let me give you some passages of Scripture that talk about the church. Let's look to the Bible. What does the Bible say? about the church, who are we, what are we here for, and and what does God think? And if we look at Matthew 16 and verse 18, and I'll try and have these verses for you up on the overhead, Jesus said this, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You may remember this. This was when Peter said, you know, Jesus was asking, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That was revealed to you through the Holy Spirit. And on this rock, this truth, this foundation that I am the Christ and the Son of God, on this truth I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So whose church is it anyway? It's His church. Jesus said, I'm going to be building my church. It's not our church. It's not the pastor's church. It's His church. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And He is the one that is going to build it. If it's going to be built at all, man can't build His church. He is going to build it. So we have an identity that we we are members of His church that He is building. A little bit more about the church in Ephesians 5.23. It says this, Christ is head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. So, who's in charge of the church? Jesus. Paul said, Christ is the head. And pastors and and ministry leaders, we all serve under the authority of Jesus Christ. A pastor cannot decide what the church should look like and how it should go and how it should be. Christ is the head. And those that serve as shepherds, we are under shepherds to the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. He goes on in Ephesians and he says, Christ in verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her a reference to the cross, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that He might present her to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ has paid for the church with His own blood. He has cleansed the church with His work at the cross. And the church is now considered the bride of Christ. We belong to Him. 
Now, we are just a local church here, but we are a part of a global church. All that are truly in Christ are part of the church of Christ today. Generations past, and if he tarries, generations future. We are all corporately a part of this church, which is his bride. And he has cleansed us, and he has washed us with his own blood that He might preserve us. Do you see it? That He might present to Himself at the end of the age all of the church that has lived upon the earth will be gathered and be presented to Him in the way that He has provided for them and washed them with His own finished work at the cross. Paul would write to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul said, look, Timothy, this isn't your church. I'm writing so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in God's house, which is His church. And listen, the church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is a place where truth can be found. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the church of Jesus Christ is a place where in a crazy time, when truth is turned upside down and people are wandering, wondering if truth is even something that is absolute or relative at all, there needs to be a light. There needs to be a place called the Church of Jesus Christ where people can come and find the pillar and ground of truth. You know, truth does not change. That word pillar, that word ground, it talks about a stable, consistent foundation. And so the church is called to be this place where truth is contended for. Leaders have been given a stewardship of conduct Paul said, so you'll know how to conduct yourself to protect what God has purchased through Christ. Now listen, ministry methods may change. I'm I'm sure that, you know, we're thankful today for the use of technology overheads that we can look at the Scriptures, microphones to help us amplify our music and our voices. You know, we're enjoying all kinds of new ministry methods today that even a hundred years ago weren't, weren't available to the church. Methods change, but the message never changes. And the truth concerning what God has prepared the church to be does not change. We may look a little different, we may dress a little different, we may you know, sing different types of music and enjoy certain technologies that help us do ministry in church, but we are still the church, this pillar and ground of truth. We are still belonging to Christ. So this is the question. Do we have an obligation to maintain and preserve a certain standard for God's church? And I think we do. And three areas that I want to talk to you about this morning. There may be more, but these are the three that stood out to me just in thinking of Scriptures and and kind of uh, praying over this idea of preservation. The first area that I believe that we have an obligation from God to preserve in our midst is a moral standard. This is what Paul is writing about for this man back in 1 Corinthians 5. He was living in open immorality. He was violating the known moral conduct of God's Word. 
And Paul said, you can't have that in your church. That kind of leaven will leaven the whole lump. There needs to be a moral standard and integrity. Now that doesn't mean we all live up to that standard all the time. But what it does mean is that we agree there is a standard and that that is God's goal and target for us and that is what we are ascribing to live under. Rather than looking to change the standard to meet my moral you know, appetites and to meet whatever I feel like doing. I don't want to come into the church and feel like there's a standard that doesn't fit with me. I want the standard to change. I want my lifestyle to be affirmed. I want my lifestyle to be celebrated in the church. That's, let's move the moral standard to accommodate my moral conduct, what I think is right. And that can't happen in the church. And I'm not picking on any specific lifestyle, but certainly there are you know, many uh, immoral choices that are made in our culture. And we have to stand for something in the church, and we have to, I believe we have to want to practice a lifestyle of moral purity and according to God's Word. Morality, I think that we, we cannot sacrifice the standard of morality. Now, we may all need to, from time to time, confess and get our hearts right and get our lives right, but we don't move the standard. We, we continue by the grace of God to allow God to transform us into this image of the standard, which is Christ. The second thing that I believe we must concentrate in an area of preservation is our unity as a church. You know, some churches, they're, they're just constantly disruptive. They're individuals that are always quarrelsome, argumentative. They, they're unwilling to submit to the spiritual authority. They, they don't want to do it that way, and they, they want to do it this way. They cause division. They gossip. They stir trouble. And that's not something that's going to make for a healthy church when there's divisions and schisms. This is another thing that Paul was trying to preserve in this church. He had written early, I understand that there are schisms and divisions among you. Are you not carnal? I want to talk to you like spiritual people, but you're all divided. Disunity. So we do need to contend for unity in our midst. Now, you know, this church isn't for every person and every believer, and there are other fellowships that may be better suited for those things that you're looking for in a church or what God has for you. And that's okay, but what we need to do wherever we land, wherever we need to be striving for unity, and we need to be looking for unity. It's not something we're going to have in perfection, but it's our goal, it's our striving, and it's something worth preserving. And I think spiritual leadership has to work to maintain it. Finally, the third thing that I think we must preserve is doctrine. We cannot allow false doctrine to be introduced in the church. We must not allow false teaching. We can't have the, the doctrinal positions of the church challenged and reevaluated. We need to draw the Scripture and as best our ability develop our doctrine and our, our teaching foundations from His Word. Now, we may have some small differences on non-essential things. I think that's normal in every church. There's always some kind of peripheral issues that can be debated and discussed in Bible studies and opinions can be held. But there are some core orthodox doctrines that we hold to and we must contend for. The deity of Christ. This is something that we can't compromise on. He, what Jesus is and was, and always will be God. 
And any teaching that diminishes His deity is not allowed or tolerated in the life of the church. We've got to contend for that. We've got to be willing to preserve the doctrine that has been handed down to us by the apostles and the prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are things that we must preserve in church and things that we have to be willing to to work out and fight for if need be. And it's worth it because this is something that God has promised for us. Now, i got to tell you that we also have to be patient. You know, you have to allow God's Word to work and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. You know, not everybody that walks through the door is completely on board doctrinally. It takes some time to even figure out what does this church believe? What is the teaching? What is the, the kind of the foundation of this church? You know, you can read our statement of faith, but you know, sometimes you just got to be in the church for a little while to discover, and we have to give time for that. People walk in and they may have a different idea doctrinally. Well, we're not going to just pounce on them and say, you know, either believe like us right now or get out. It's not like that. No, come, listen to the Word of God. Let God's Word minister to your heart. See if in time the Holy Spirit begins to confirm these things. Search the Scriptures. We encourage you, read your Bible. Find out if these things... We're not mandating. We're saying this is what we believe. Come with us to study with. Let's discover together. People come in, you know... They're just checking the church out. You know, some people come in and they're not even Christians yet, but they're, they're hungry, you know, they're seeking something. They know something is missing. Maybe a friend invites them. Maybe they're just needing God. They saw the sign off the freeway. I just need to try this church and see what's happening. I need some help in my life. And here you are. <laughs> you know, well, we, you know, what are we going to do? You, you know, you're, you're, your life is still, you know, maybe, you know, living in some kind of a, of a sinful situation. It's possible. It happens all the time. What are we going to do? You know what we're going to do? We're going to give the Word of God time to work in your life. We welcome you. We want the church to be a place where sinners can come and hear God's Word because we're all just sinners here to hear God's Word. And so let God's Word work in your heart. Let the Holy Spirit have opportunity. But there does come a time when after this time and this ministry that, that you give place to, and sometimes you meet with people privately and minister to them delicately and, and in the Spirit, but you know some people, they come to the place where they just don't want to submit to these things. I want to be here, I want to enjoy the fellowship of the church, but I want to live in sin. I know it and I want it, and I'm not going to change. But I want to be here and do... You know, be a part of what's going on. In fact, I'd like to teach teach the kids Sunday school, but I don't want to change. You see, you see where this becomes a problem. But I can sing good. I'd like to be on the worship team, but I don't. I don't want to have to change anything about my lifestyle, or I don't want to have to believe what you think about you know the deity of Christ. Okay, so in that situation, we have to contend. We have to say, look, this is something that we've got to preserve here, and this is what's going on with Paul's letter. Somebody is willingly purposefully refusing to submit to these preservations of the church and wants to just keep, keep themselves there and active. And Paul said, that can't be. You're going to have to discipline them. You're going to have to ask them to leave. You may have to set them down from service. They can't serve. You may have to you know, confront them. And church, I can tell you that that's not easy. That's why Paul said, you know, When I wrote these things, I wrote that I might put you to the test. 
whether you would be obedient in these things. Paul said, look, this is not easy, guys. But you need to do this. And this is a test for you as a church. Will you contend for your fellowship? Will you preserve the moral standard, the unity, the doctrine of your church? Not that we're all perfect, but are we in agreement that these things are important? And will you address these things in your fellowship? And they did. And we see you know, something of the result. You know, I want to read to you out of Second Timothy. Again, Paul talking to this young pastor, instructing him on his ministry. In chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Look, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Be patient, but... Do what you've got to do. For the time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up teachers for themselves. They will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You've got to keep preaching the truth and ministering the truth because people are going to come to a place where they don't want that. And that's why you've got to contend for it. They're going to want to hear what they want to hear. They want to hear what, what appeases and affirms them and what they want for the Christian fellowship. And so Paul instructs Timothy, you, you preach the Word, young man, and you convince, you rebuke, you exhort. You do it with patience and you do it through teaching, but you contend for the fellowship that God has given you. Preservation. Well, I'm glad I'm not just talking about preservation. I'm glad I also get to talk about restoration. Let's get to the good news of this two-part sermon. Restoration, we see that this discipline that Paul had to instruct this church to implement brought about good fruit. And this is always the goal of discipline. This is always the goal of confrontation and, and dealing and exhorting and instructing and rebuking. It's restoration. Always the heart uh, that God has in us accomplishing these things. He says there in verse 6 and 7, "...the punishment is sufficient, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow." Restoration begins with repentance. And this man is obviously sorrow, sorry for his sin. His heart is turned from what he was doing. He's sorry for it, and that's what repentance is. It's a turning, it's a sorrow for what's been done, an agreement that there needs to be change, and a turning and change of heart and attitude. And Paul says, listen, now that this man has truly repented, it's time to forgive him. He says, you need to forgive him, and he says, I have forgiven him. He goes on to say, I've forgiven him in the presence of Christ, and we'll talk about that. But not just repentance, forgiveness, restoration. Comfort Him. Reaffirm your love for Him. Don't just say that you forgive this person, but then treat them you know, like you know, damaged goods when you're around them. Oh yeah, that's the one that had the problem, remember? Yeah, God bless you. Right? We can get into that. We, we say, we, but then they're, they're marked. And Paul's saying, look, bring this guy back in. Treat this guy like it never happened. 
Bring him back into the fellowship, back into the body. That's always the goal of discipline and is forgiveness and restoration. Look at James with me. James 5.19. Again, I'll have it for you on the, up top. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is part of the ministry of the church is to help keep people back, bring people back to the Lord. Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, how? In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This restoration is to be a work done in a spirit of gentleness. It's not some heavy hand. Some, you know, we're going to straighten you out, buddy. Get in line or get, get out. This is an appeal of love. Look, like Paul with tears, I love you. Oh, come back to the Lord. Don't do this. Don't go this direction. Don't choose this path. God loves you. He has something good for you. Come back to the Lord. Give your heart to Him. And when one does, this beautiful restoration can take place. True forgiveness and restoration from the heart. Treating them like it never happened. Isn't that the way the Lord treats you? As if it never happened. Your, skin, your sins, though they were scarlet, have been made white as snow. Your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. This is the way God has treated us, and this is the way we must treat one another. Otherwise, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. What are his devices? Well, clearly one of the devices that Paul is addressing here is that Satan wants to heap up condemnation and despair on this guy. He wants this guy to believe that it's too late. There's no hope. Forget it. And isn't that the way Satan works? You know, before you sin and he's tempting you to sin, he downplays the consequences. You're okay. Everybody's doing it. That's no big deal. It's a small no, A little compromise won't hurt you. Hey, you can handle it. You're, hey, come on. It's like, yeah, well, okay. Not so bad. And then you, you take a bite of the apple. And then what does he do? You loser. You blew it. You call yourself a Christian? You're going to come in church and worship God? I don't think so, buddy. Get out of here. They don't want you. They don't need you. God doesn't want you. You're a loser. You blew it. You're a sinner. And God's done with you. That condemnation. He tempts you with the the no consequence to sin until you sin, and then He buries you in condemnation and guilt, trying to isolate you, separate you, push you from the throne of grace. And that's condemnation. Condemnation is always coming to move you away from God, pushing you out because of your sense of guilt, shame, and unworthiness. But the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there is a sorrow for sin, but it's always with this idea of restoration. Come back. God still loves you. Get it right in your heart. Confess your sin. Get back in fellowship. Get back to God's people. Let them embrace you. Get connected. Stay connected. God has purpose and plan for you. It's not too late. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying to this, to this church. Guys, don't let this guy suffer under this guilt any longer. Come alongside him. He's, 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 he blew it. He knows it. He's repented. Now embrace him. Reaffirm your love. Forgive him. Let it go. 
this guy, we don't want Satan to take advantage of him. You know, another tactic of the enemy, not only to condemn the sinner to despair, but Satan looks to keep unforgiveness lodged in the heart of those that have been offended. You see, that becomes a little bitter root in you and poisons your spiritual life. You've been hurt. You've been, you don't know what he did. He really hurt me, and he did, and it's wrong. But now he's asking forgiveness. Yeah, but I'm not ready. And now Satan, is, and Satan will, will stir that up. You're right. You can't let him get away with that. Oh, now he's just forgiven because he's got no way. You need to hold that. You need to get on him. You need to stay on him or her. <laughs> Whatever the case, right? And that bitterness, and Satan uses that, and the church is weakened. And the church is affected in a negative way. Listen, we do have to preserve But we always need to be a place for restoration. There is no sinner too stained. There is no lifestyle too dark. There is, no, there is nothing that we cannot embrace and bring restoration for the heart that is sincere. For the heart that will come and say, God, forgive me. We need to be all over that. Some of you need that today. And hear the heart of the Lord. He loves you. It's not easy, church. Forgiveness is not easy. C.S. Lewis, he said this, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) That's so true, right? Forgiveness, what a great concept until we have to forgive. Then it's hard. How do we do it? Paul said in verse 10, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And that's the key to forgiveness. It has to be done in the presence of Christ. And what that means, I think it has two two thoughts to it. One, I, I forgive you in the presence of Christ because He has forgiven me. Because I have been so mercifully forgiven I am compelled to forgive you because of what Christ has done for me. So it's done in the presence because of what He's done, and then it's also done under the empowering of Christ. God, help me to forgive. You have forgiven me. Put that power of forgiveness in me so that it will go through me and help me to forgive this person that has offended me, this person that has injured me. Colossians 3.13 If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You see that? Even as Christ forgave you. Your forgiveness comes in the presence of Christ. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We don't have time to read through this parable, but I'll reference it for you in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and following. This is where Peter asked uh, Jesus, you know, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Feeling pretty good about the number seven. That's pretty generous. Jesus said, no, Peter, 70 times seven. And he goes on from there and he shares a parable. He talks about a man who owed his master an uncalculable debt, a debt he could never pay back. And he can, and then the master came to collect, and he pleaded for mercy, and the master forgave him the entire amount. He didn't work out a payment plan, he just forgave the whole thing. 
Well, this servant who was forgiven by his master, he went out and he found someone who owed him just a few bucks, just some pocket change. He said, hey, where's that money you owe me? He said, well, I don't have it on me right now. I'll pay it if you give me some time. I'm not giving you any time. Had him arrested and thrown into prison. And the master heard about it. He said, wait a minute. I forgave you that, that whole amount and then you went out and pinched this guy for a few bucks? What's wrong with you? You who've received such mercy and grace, now you become so exacting and unforgiving? And he threw that wicked servant into prison. And of course, Jesus was illustrating a point. Listen, He has forgiven you something more than you could ever have paid on your own. You could never pay the debt for your sin. You could never earn right standing before God in your own merit. God has forgiven you and I what's not even measurable. Now will we hold one another to petty little amounts having been forgiven by God? You see the point. We forgive in the, play, in the face of Christ, in the presence of Christ. I'll cl- I will close with this, this story of Corey Ten Boom. Again, I'm talking about forgiveness and restoration. Not only in the church, folks, but it, ha- it, it needs to happen individually too. It needs to happen in our homes. It needs to happen in our personal lives. This, this for the church also translates into our lives personally. Corrie Ten Boom, you may remember, she was uh, a survivor of the Holocaust and um, wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And uh, in a post-war meeting with a guard from Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister had died and where she herself had been subjected to horrible indignities. This is what she writes. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. The power of forgiveness, it comes from the divine. We do not have it in ourselves. 
We must forgive others in the presence of Christ, recognizing what He has done for us and then asking Him to empower us with His love and His grace to forgive one another. Restoration. It's what it's all about, church. Being reconciled to God through Christ. If you're here today and you need to repent, I would encourage you to get your heart right today. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here today and and you know in your heart that you're not living according to what God is calling you to. And you just need to get your life right. Maybe you're not even saved. You don't even know Jesus. I encourage you, repent. Turn your heart. Don't ask God to, to, to approve and, and, and affirm your sin. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin. And turn your heart in repentance to Him. And then having done that, I encourage you, let Christ forgive you. Whatever it is, however dark, whatever the past, whatever it is, receive the forgiveness that is available to you in Christ. You know, the impossible sense of Corey Tin Boom that this man could be forgiven, but then the power of God affirming, I forgive him. Let receive forgiveness in your heart today. And finally, let Christ empower you to forgive. Repent if you need to. Receive forgiveness and be forgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study today. A very sobering word, the Apostle Paul, putting the church to the test. Will you contend for the church of Jesus Christ? Will you stand for truth? Will you embrace God's moral absolutes as your standard for living? Not that you can always live up to it, but you acknowledge that it's right and that it's good. Will you walk in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And will you contend for the gospel as passed down by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and prophets of the New Testament? Father, I pray for us as a church that we will be the church of Jesus Christ in our time. That you will continue to be the head of this church and that you will continue to build this church and that you will continue, God, to sanctify and set this church apart for your chosen purpose. For this church and for your church in the world today, God, preserve us, help us, keep us. And Lord, speak to pastors and leaders to hold on to these truths. And Lord, speak to congregations to embrace them, to know that this is what you have planned for your people. And as our heads are bowed here today, just closing in prayer, I just you'll stay with me for just another moment in prayer. I, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here today and you need to respond to God's Word. It may be that you are here today and you do not have a relationship with the Lord. You've never really come to the Lord with true repentance and said, God, I confess I'm a sinner. I've been trying to justify, I've been trying to pretend that somehow I'm okay and I'm right with you, but I know in my heart I'm not. And I know that I need forgiveness. And so, Jesus, I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to forgive me. No more excuses, no more pretending I need a Savior. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus and you know that 
that His love is reaching out to you, I'd love to pray for you. And God will touch you and cleanse you right now. Maybe you're here today and you need to come back to the Lord. It may be that you're one that's holding on to unforgiveness. And that unforgiveness has actually driven you away from God because you're too busy being bitter and resentful. And even your own spiritual life has now grown cold and dormant. And maybe you need to come back, refresh your heart here today, rededicate your life to Him. Maybe you've just drifted, just wandered from the Lord, and God is calling you home today, and you want to just come and rededicate your heart to Him. I want to pray for you as well. So if you're here today and you want to receive Jesus for the very first time, or you want to recommit, rededicate your life to Him, Would you raise your hand where you're seated? Let me see you and I'll pray for you. God bless you. Number of hands. You're in the center section there in the back. Upstairs in the balcony. Amen. Any others? God bless you up here in the front there. Anyone else? Just before I pray, Lord, speaking to you, it's between you and Him. He loves you. He wants to meet you right now with His love and His mercy. Anyone else, just before I pray, let me see your hand. So God, I do thank You for these that have responded here today to Your Word. and Lord, fairly heavy Word today, God. A pretty straightforward Word that You bring to us from Your Scripture today. But I'm so glad that you love us enough to speak the truth to us. I'm so thankful that you, your word is able to cut through the, the nonsense of our own thinking sometimes, the silliness of the world. And Lord, something that stands out as truth is so good and fresh and, tr- and right. And so we come to that, that light today and we say, Jesus, you're right. I need forgiveness. I don't need excuses. I don't need affirmation. I need cleansing. I repent. I turn my heart to You now. I ask You to wash me by the blood that You shed for me at the cross because You loved me. Cleanse me. Wash me. And then, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Help me now to live for You. Help me, Lord, to live out this new life in Christ, to come back to this life in Christ. And God, help me to be forgiving as I have been forgiven. Empower me, Lord, in places that I cannot do it on my own. I surrender it to you now, and I thank you, Lord, for meeting us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand with me. Thank you today for being here. God bless you. Let's uh, close in a song of worship. We'll have uh, prayer available here. Um, For those of you that need prayer, those of you that raised your hand, we would love just to pray with you individually. We have Bibles and resources available. We just want to confirm what God is doing in your heart. You may have another need that you would like prayer for. We'll have prayer ministry available immediately following the service. God bless you. May the Lord be with you tonight, today. And uh, I hope to see some of you here tonight for our time of worship. God bless you.